The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Well, we're in the book of Jonah, and we continue in our book uh, series through the book of Jonah. And for you, if you're new with us or visiting, you know, we love going through books of the Bible. We believe that the, the scriptures are God's word. They're inerrant. They're inspired. They're holy. This means that these are the actual words of God, and to disregard or disobey these words is to disregard or disobey God himself. So we have a very high view of Scripture. We love going through the books of the Bible because it's, it's a great way to see the flow of, of God's Word to us and instruction and guidance uh, and counsel for us. And so we've picked the book of Jonah that we've been in now. Uh, this is our fifth week, and we have two weeks after today, but... It's been a great journey, and and we're going to pick up in chapter 3. And I'm going to start back where we actually started last week, which is in verse 1. And so you can find your place in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly an exceedingly great city, Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. This is the quintessential, cliche, typical Mother's Day sermon passage to pick. Okay, this is your feel-good sermon, right? But, but maybe it is. I mean, give me some time. Maybe as we walk through this, we will see just such beauty in this. We will see such grace and such love of God that this is, in fact, a great feel-good sermon. just happens to be where we land in the passage, and so we're going to walk through it. You know, because we, we, whenever we rightly look at God, whenever we rightly come together and talk about God and who He is, we will be led to this place of just gazing on the supreme blessedness of God. And any passage, whether it's a passage like this that seems Uh, We have to dig a little bit to see the the feel-good message in it. Even those, whenever we talk about God, we are going to put his wonderful beauty and majesty on display. And as we gaze on that, we can't help but be blessed as we take it in. God is slow to anger. God is merciful. God is gracious. God's anger is removed from a people who have lived in wickedness. This is comforting news. This is life-giving news. Now, this would be normally at the end of my sermon as I wrap things up. I would 
kind of bring in this sentence to tie it in together, but I'm going to do that right at the beginning. To get this out of the way, to put our minds on, on what this is about, and I'm bringing it all the way to the front. It doesn't matter who you are, or what you've done, or how hard your heart is against God. There is hope for anyone. Because of what we learn about the gospel, according to Jonah, in this passage. And that's where we find ourselves today. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what is on your heart and minds. But the hope that we see through Jonah in this passage is for all of us. And the gospel, like any great story of redemption, begins with a problem. God says, I smell something and it's not good. In so many words, that's what he says. Remember in Jonah chapter 1 when we started this passage, the second verse says, Go to Nineveh, God is calling out to Jonah. He says, go to Nineveh, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Their evil has come up before me. You know, when God was being worshipped by people in the temple, they would offer these burnt sacrifices. They would set a fire of something, whether it was, uh, whether it was some plant life or animal life, they would set an offering, and the smoke would go up, and it would actually come up before God, and he would receive it as pleasing to him. And in the same way, he's describing the lives of these people. He's like, their lives, their offering is, is like a burnt offering, and it's coming up to my nostrils, and it stinks. It smells. And something has to change. You ever open the fridge? You know what I'm talking about? You open the fridge, and right away, it's like there's this, this waft of air just comes to you, and you smell it, and you're like, something is in there, and it's got to go. And I cannot rest until I find out and search out what is in that fridge that is dying so it doesn't smell anymore. And please tell me that's what you say when you smell something like that. You don't just let it go. Someone else will take care of it. Or you're just like, I'm going to go to takeout from now on. I'm not opening that thing again. But you know what I'm talking about? You smell this and you're like, something has to change. I have to get rid of whatever is in there. I have to find it, search it out, purge it, because it's just destroying everything in there. And you find it's a bag of liquid that used to not be a liquid. No. <laughs> The evil of these people are so wicked, so violent. And it comes up to God and he says, that stinks. And I have to do something about it. They were worshiping other idols and other gods. Think of any number of just horrible sins and these people were were doing it. They were practicing it. But instead of destroying these people... You see, God doesn't do what we would do by finding that smell. So you would say, I got to get rid of it. I just got to throw it away. God doesn't do that. And still, he's he's still as as disgusted by this violence and evil going on in the people. But he doesn't take the same response that you and I might take to something like that. He says, it's wrong. It's bad. I've got to address it. But he doesn't just take it, throw it away, and get on with his day. He sends Jonah. He begins this campaign of mercy to reach them, to get their attention, to bring a message to them. And mercy is one of those unique, exceptional words. It means kindness and patience and forgiveness toward us. It's his compassionate willingness to suffer for and with sinners. That's God's mercy, his willingness to engage in the life of of wickedness and evil and sinful people. To not just cast it out and throw it away, but to enter into? 
so we look at this passage, and let's see how God expresses his mercy to these people that are just really bad people. First, we see that God is merciful in his warning. There is mercy in God's warning. Look at verse 2 that we read. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God is saying, Jonah, go and tell these people something. Let them know. Let them know that they are being watched, that something is wrong. When I grew up in northern Kentucky and went to high school in northern Kentucky, we had a really bad house fire in our home that we lived in. All my siblings, a family of nine, seven kids, we all lived in this house, and we had a really bad fire. My younger brother put a candle on his desk. My sister's laughing. She remembers. My younger brother... She's glad it wasn't her. No, sorry. My younger brother puts a candle on his desk, shuts the door, and leaves. And in the rest of the story, you already know, we had a really bad house fire. All the while, this room is being consumed. It's being charred from the inside out. And, and my brother, a couple brothers, sister, others are in the living room hanging out. There's some friends over after school. And smoke is one of those undeniable smells, isn't it? It's one of those smells that you know what it is when you smell it. You know that a fire is close by. His room was completely gutted, completely torn up. You can't help in times of tragedy like that to, I'll I'll tell you what happened, but you can't help in times of tragedy to think about what could have been if we didn't smell the smoke, if we didn't see the smoke, if we weren't alerted to this disaster that was just going on inside of that room. What, would ha- what could have happened if there wasn't any smoke, we think? What if no one smelled it? What, if, what would happen if my older brother wasn't home to save my little sister who was trapped on the second-story balcony with nothing between, you know, she was between falling and the raging fire inside the house? What would have happened if he wasn't there? What would have happened if the firemen didn't get there quick enough? What would have happened if we didn't have time You think about these things. What an act of mercy it was for God to let these people know that something horrible was going on. That's mercy. You know, often we think of mercy as as just what happened at the end of this story, that God took, that he, he, he looked over their wickedness, that he removed his anger and punishment from them. But what about the mercy in the very beginning of just letting him know his word coming to them? Everybody was okay in the fire. The room was completely destroyed. The house was completely destroyed by smoke. We were out of the house for two months, living in hotels. It was really horrible. Actually, it was. As a high school student living with your six other siblings, it was really horrible. The message for the people is very short. Forty days and Nineveh shall, shall be overthrown. This is the most powerful city of the time. And the whole city, from the kings, the people, even the livestock, are transformed by an eight-word sermon. An eight-word sermon, and the whole city is transformed. And I know that many of you are thinking, you know, I would love to receive an eight-word sermon one of these Sundays. (laughs) But maybe Father's Day, (laughs) okay? He gives them 40 days. Isn't this interesting? He gives them 40 days to act. He doesn't destroy the city instantly, and he would have been totally justified 
in doing that. A righteous act of God to just destroy everybody and start over. And he would have been totally right in doing it. He gives them 40 days. 40 days is a long time for a righteous and perfect God to defer judgment on a city that is so evil, so against him. Isn't it? That's a long time. We wait far shorter for much less offenses in our own lives. Don't we? How many of you moms or dads have said, I'm going to count to three? Why not count to 100? I'm going to count to 100. That would be, that would be a merciful warning. I'm gonna, now, I'm not, I'm not recommending any certain parenting style. I'm just observing. I've heard you say this. I'm going to count to three. You're not God. You're not perfect. God, this perfect God, is giving these people 40 days. My point being in all this, when, when we are wronged by someone close to us, when we are hurt, by someone that we are in charge of, when someone in leadership or authority over us or under us acts in disobedience, when someone we are in charge of leading disobeys our commands, our rules, we want justice right away, don't we? We want there to be rules. The rules are in place. You knew the rules, and you disobeyed those rules, and now there's punishment for those rules. We want judgment. We want things to be made right, and we won't sleep until they are made right. We want them to know, you can't treat me this way. And for the sake of some young ones who are here, I'm not going to go into detail about the Ninevite people and actually what they were doing, but take my word for it, or you can study it on your own. It's the most despicable kind of life. It is the worst kind of behavior. From sexual sins to, to violent sins and everything in between, these people are disgusting. And if for you, if you were to see these kinds of people, you would say, just get rid of these people. Just do something. But God doesn't do that. The word of God to Nineveh is so filled with mercy. Because without it, they would not know who God is. They would not know what God requires. They would not know how to find joy in God. They would not know how to respond to God. And so God coming to them, giving them a warning, is filled with his mercy. It's easy to see God's word, his warning, and, to, and, and for it to feel a burden at times. It's, it's easy, isn't it, to read something from God and say, oh, this is really going to get in the way of my social life. This is really going to have to change the way I do things. And we feel that sometimes God's word is a burden. It's a hindrance to our freedom. But the truth is, it is the reason for our freedom. It's the path to freedom. That God's word is given to us so we can have life and have it abundantly. And to ignore it would just be foolish. The most annoying sound in the world? The fire alarm chirp. Right? In the middle of the night. And what do we do when we hear that chirp in our anger? We go and take out the battery. (laughs) The worst thing to do. It is there for our freedom. It's there for our life. It is there for our comfort and well-being. It is a warning to us. 
that something bad is going to happen. Something bad is there, and if you don't heed this, if you don't listen to this, you will not be spared. Your life will be ruined. And God's word is saying that to us. And in his mercy is coming to us and saying, listen to me, follow me. These words are life. They are for your freedom. Hope in them, trust in them, love them. Make your life all about these words. It's mercy that he would say that. Look at the second way that God demonstrates his mercy to Nineveh. What did the people do when Jonah came with his eight-word sermon? It says, very briefly, it just says, they believed God. There is mercy in God's convincing, in God's convicting, in his changing of our hearts and minds. You know, Nineveh was this great city. 120,000 people, the walls coating the whole entire city, going around the whole city, said they were wide enough and thick enough to fit three chariots side by side on the top of the wall. It was the most powerful city in all of the ancient world at that time. It took three days to walk through. They were ruthless and violent people, and they changed. From the least to the greatest, they all changed. Their hearts were transformed. They repented from their wickedness. This is revival. This is amazing what is going on. They put on sackcloth, and sackcloth is exactly what it sounds like. It's this really thick, coarse fabric made of wool that was worn by poor people and people in mourning, by prisoners, by slaves. It was really nasty stuff, and everybody put it on. They even put it on their animals, cloaked it on their cows and cattle. They fast. They go without eating. The rich do this. The poor do this. Then the king joins them and and makes a law that says people, everybody should cry out to God. When the truth hits home, it cuts to the heart. And when it cuts to the heart, it requires a response. It requires a, a repenting of the way that we were living and a change of mind, a change of direction, a change of, of action into something that is towards God rather than away from God. How do you get one guy, one man, who is probably still covered in gastric juices from the fish that he was just spit out of, how do you get one guy like that to change an entire city? Trick question. You don't. This is clearly the work of God. And they even recognize that. Jonah comes preaching and they believed God. Not that they believed Jonah. They believed God. They saw that God was behind this. And it is only by God that, can, that our hearts can be changed. What is really happening here? If you've been with us, you've seen that God has done some amazing things. The God who commands the storm to rage and to to quiet. The God who controls the sea monsters. The God who controls the fish. The God who controls the sailors. The God who controls everything. Even Jonah is doing here the most difficult thing, more difficult than any of all those other things. He is controlling and changing the hearts of an entire city. There is something supernatural that happens in the heart of a person when they are grieved by their isolation from God, when they are grieved by their position of wickedness before God. There's something that only God can do that can take a heart like that that is hard and of stone and make it soft that responds in obedience to God. Only God can do that. 
And apart from God, we would never be able to get to that point. We would never be able to soften up enough to respond to God in righteousness and repentance. And we see here that God is doing that. And it is by his mercy that he would do that to an entire city. What an amazing thing that God would do. That he would not only speak to their ears, but he would speak to their hearts. Look at what the king does. He forfeits his throne to the mercy of God. He takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth. It's this imagery of this power and control and fame, giving that up, being in a position of humility before God, recognizing that God is is a God of mercy and that all that he is and has depends on God. If you have weakness in your life, if you have some sin in your life, it doesn't mean that right now you are in a position of condemnation before God, but it does mean that God seriously wants to speak to that thing in your life. God seriously wants to speak to your heart to change whatever it is you're doing that is apart from his goodness. He wants to seriously remove this pollution, remove the wickedness, so that you can have life, so that you can have him. The word of God as it comes to Nineveh, comes to Jonah, must also come to us. It must also come with the same severity, the same life-giving warning, the same seriousness. Do you read God's word like that? I don't always. I know that I want to and I need to, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes my mind isn't there. That as I read God's word and I say, oh man, this is just, I can't relate. I can't. This is God's word that is coming to you. It is his mercy that is speaking to you. We should be just, our hearts should be resting in this saying, this is serious. God, let it change my heart. Hebrews chapter 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what God's word does, and it has the power to do, that it cuts through to our soul, and it touches on something, the exact thing that we need to hear, the thing that we need to give up to God. If you feel that God's warning is coming to you, that his word has come to you, that it's messing with your life, that it's inconveniencing you because it's just difficult to understand, it's difficult to hear. Let me tell you this. It is a gift that that is happening. This is God's mercy that he is messing with you because he loves you. Don't ignore this, but love it. Say, thank you, God, for messing with my life because there's something in my life that is leading down towards evil and death but you love me in your mercy mercy to take me from that, to lead me to life. Help me not to ignore that. It's hard to change. Isn't it hard to change? You know, it's hard to change your own life. It's hard to change your own mess. You know what mess you're going through, and you're thinking it's hard to change that. Is it hard to change a city of 120,000 like that? Yeah. But with the Spirit working in our hearts, nothing is impossible. And then we come to this final piece of passage that talks about the mercy of God as we commonly see God's mercy, his holding back of punishment, his removing of punishment for people that actually 
deserve it because there is mercy in God's relenting. And that's what he does here. Everything in this story is big, right? I thought about calling this series Big. That was actually the series that it was going to be called at first, was just Big, the story of Jonah. And I changed it to Boundless, obviously. But the reason why I was thinking about Big, because everything in this story is big. We see this big rebellion of Jonah, this big storm, this big fear of the sailors, this big drama as they throw him into the ocean, the big fish, the big spitting out, the big love and mercy and compassion of God. Everything is big. And so it is with the mercy of God as it reaches out to these people. It is big. It is huge. It's humongous. Humongous, a word we don't use quite as much as we should. Humongous. Look at everybody is changed by God's mercy. There is revival. When they turn to God and hear his message of, of punishment, there is revival. Now, I know that that is a spooky word for some of you. Revival. Oh, that's, that's weird. I can't trust it. I don't know what's going on. Everything's changing too quickly for me. Right? Revival. What is revival? What does revival mean? It means... Hold on. <laughs> it is a change to life. It is a resurrection from death to life. Reviving someone. Taking a dead life, a dead heart, and breathing life into it. Revival is exactly what is happening to the people of Nineveh. Restoring them to life. This is what God does for sinners. This is what God does for sinners. Is By his mercy, he restores a sinner to life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is what God does, that we run from him, we rebel from him. The Bible says that we all do it. We all sin. We all fall short of God's demands for us. And then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of what Christ has done for us, and the mercy and grace that he has given to us, he revives us, restores us to a relationship of peace and righteousness. Where we stand before God justified. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Mercy sweetens everything it touches. Everything that mercy touches, it sweetens, it makes better. It is a blessing to those who receive it. It is a blessing to those who give it. I ran across this quote. It's from a book that's on my bookshelf called When Sinners Say I Do. What a great marriage book title right? really makes you excited about marriage. <laughs> but this quote, it's fantastic. It's not for everybody, but it's a great book. It says, mercy doesn't change the need to speak truth. It transforms our motivation from a desire to win battles to a desire to represent Christ. 
Imagine what can happen if we were to seek mercy in our lives, in our relationships, the way that God seeks mercy. Imagine that. What could happen if we receive God's mercy with a glad heart to give it away freely to those who don't deserve it? It is so easy to give mercy to people that are easy to give mercy to. It's easy to love people that are very lovable. But God shows in his rich mercy that he is slow to anger, abounding in mercy, that he gives it to sinners, people that deserve punishment from him, the wrath of God, the worst things in the Bible, the most scariest things are those things he's relenting from, from the people of Nineveh, from me, from you. I have a confession to make. I believe that everybody should get what they deserve, except me. You ever feel that way? It's hard for me to walk through this passage and not tell you that's how I feel a lot of times. Hey, there are rules and you've got to live by them. Hey, God doesn't want you to do that. You shouldn't do it. Hey, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm a Christian and, and, and I just do the right thing. You should get what you deserve. That's the way that God works. That's not the way that God works. We see God's merciful. What would it look like in your life if you were to abound in mercy? To show mercy to people who are undeserving of mercy? Because that's the very definition of mercy. It's not giving people what they do deserve. And I wanted to think of an appropriate Mother's Day charge to you, a way to honor all of our ladies here, honor our mothers. And, and I think maybe the best way to do that, at least for today, is not to speak to you, but maybe to speak to all the men in this room. What would it look like for you? There are women in your life in some capacity, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a wife, a friend, to abound in mercy with that person. To not stop speaking truth, but speaking truth in love and representing Christ in how you treat this person. What if you were slow to anger, slow to judgment? What if you were quick to listen, quick to understand, quick to mercy? I bet there would be revival in your life. I really do. I think that there would be revival in your marriage. Revival in your relationship with your kids. Revival in your workplace. I bet that there would be a restored life. A real revival like there was in Nineveh. People would know Jesus more because of the life that you're living. Enemies might become friends. Relationships would be restored. There would be peace. There would be God's shalom. Do you need a restored life? Maybe you're one that actually needs that restored life. Maybe you're the one that's broken down, that you're, just, you're really hurting and you just don't know what to do. You need to know that God promises restored life through Jesus. And by no other means. He never says, if Jesus doesn't work, there's always something else that you can run to. He says everything else is, is insufficient. Everything else will lead in the wrong direction. Only Jesus has the ability to create a revival. Only Jesus has the ability to create a dead person into a person who is alive. 
run to Jesus. Make your life about Jesus. Where you are hurting, make it about Jesus. Go to God with that. Where you are hurt by someone else, make it about Jesus, not about you. Make it about who God is. Receive his mercy for what you've done. Pray that you'd be able to give mercy to those who have wronged you. The Lord's Supper is a great example of God's mercy to us. Because as enemies, he does, he uses that word. He uses the word enemies to describe everybody that is, a, that is not in Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and, and became a ransom for us. So he gives his life. The night that Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he was with his friends, and he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time we participate in this meal, we remember that Christ poured out his mercy on us. God poured out his mercy on us. Because we respond to Christ, we look to Christ, we say, yes, I will change, I will repent. And we see that his mercy is poured out on us and his wrath is relented. And the things that he was going to do to us because we deserved it, he doesn't do any longer. And then he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new cup in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? That every time we take this, we see a picture, a portrait of God's mercy. That as deserving people of his anger, we now become undeserving people of his mercy and love and life. We should be thankful for that. We should celebrate that. How about the worship team come up and we're going to do that. Let's pray for our meal and then we'll take the supper together. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.